What I want to talk about today is a little bit some of the different expressions of metta, some of the different dimensions of loving kindness. So, first, just to restate something I said in the instructions this morning, which is that metta is not just one feeling. So we kind of uh, have this word metta and we go looking for one thing. What's that What's that metta? And try and say, have I got it? Have I not got it? And just to really uh, be, be conscious that it's not <coughs> one feeling. Uh, more accurately talk about perhaps a constellation of feelings um, when it expresses itself as a feeling at all. Uh, there's a constellation of feelings, and I said sometimes uh, it will take on, it will uh, feel uh, to be have, to have a slightly different colour, slightly different flavour. Um, sometimes it's very calming, very soothing. Uh, sometimes quality of healing in it. Uh, sometimes it's a very bright energy, very sort of luminous energy. Sometimes bubbly. Sometimes there's a real warmth in it, or a gentleness. So however, in, in, in the practice, however it seems to uh, kind of come up and manifest is fine. And to um, really allow those differences, allow those differences of flavors, of colors, and just to notice and feel. And it's all included in, in what we mean by metta. And sometimes, and you may have noticed this already, Sometimes we're doing the metta practice and we're aware of our own or someone's suffering. And then the metta meets that suffering and actually is then coloured, perhaps quite strongly at that point, by compassion, by the kind of tenderness of compassion. And we'll, we'll go into in quite a lot of detail the difference between uh, compassion and metta but really not to worry too much about that. In a way, it's just words and not to uh, strangle the thing too much with words and concepts. So very much to allow the different flavours. And then we have these categories that we've been uh, slowly going through. We start with the self and the benefactor and the friend, and, and it will go on. And to really see that this is just a tool. It's just a tool. Uh, the aspiration of metta is for something that extends itself boundlessly, without limit. So usually our love uh, is, is quite narrow in its scope, just towards you know, ourselves, hopefully, and maybe a few people around us that, that we care about. And the aspiration of metta is a really boundless love, uh, completely without limit. And the categories are just a tool to uh, help us move towards that boundlessness, that's all. So there's nothing fixed about them. So a person can be our benefactor <coughs> one day, and then, you know, then they say the wrong thing, and they get a, a demotion. <laughs> <laughs> and they find, themselves <laughs> they find themselves in the difficult category. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then hopefully... Uh, we work out, <laughs> and they get they get uh, you know they get a rise again, and then they're back uh, 
benefactor or friend or whatever it is. There's nothing fixed about this at all. And similarly, of course, the, the difficult person can can uh, rise through the ranks. Um, <laughs> and just to say, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. And so the first one we start with, uh, which is two days on, is the self. The self. And, and the, the uh, huge importance of, 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 um, of giving love to ourselves of really having a relationship with ourselves of metta. And it's it's just, uh, it's really crucial. And it's crucial for our lives, it's crucial also for for our, our uh, practice of metta. And so it's interesting, uh, sometimes, for some, for some people, this is very difficult, you know, for all kinds of reasons, to give metta to oneself or... Uh, you know, reasons in, in the family upbringing or the education or uh, all kinds of reasons can be can be very challenging actually to give matter to oneself. And some of the reasons sometimes are just cultural. We live in um, a culture that re- it's a sort of it's a it's a weird mixed message. I feel sometimes There's, it's a culture of individuality of self of what I want and going out to get that. And at the same time, the notion of loving oneself uh, in a healthy way is often regarded as selfish. So we're getting this very mixed message. And I remember last year on this retreat being struck by, uh, especially when we moved on to compassion, how many people found it difficult to, to uh, stay with giving, giving love to themselves. Uh, so the culture might say it's selfish. And you know, for whatever reasons or, or uh, combination of reasons... That's there, or it may be there, and sometimes it just ends up that's a habit. It's a habit to uh, not give love to ourselves or to regard it as indulgent or selfish or whatever. And somehow, through practice, uh, we have to weaken that habit. So every time we say, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, we're actually weakening that habit. And not to underestimate the, the power of that. As uh, the analogy I gave this morning, Buddha's actual words, drop by drop, the bucket is filled. Drop by drop, the bucket is filled. And the Buddha also, when he talked about this, giving love to ourselves, uh, said something very strong. He said, you could search the entire universe for someone more deserving of love and compassion than yourself. And you won't find that person. You won't find that being. So there's something, it's, it's, to me, it's a very powerful statement, something he's pointing to. Whatever we think we've done, or not done, or worth, or not worth, or, uh, you know, however we rate ourselves and measure ourselves and all that uh, disease, really. Uh, the Buddha is saying, you're worthy of love. You're worthy of giving love to yourself. This is an enormous and powerful statement. And to see, as I said before, the necessity of this, uh, uh, that when we actually begin to love ourselves, we are that much more available to giving love to others. And that much in, in our love, we are that much uh, less needy in what we're going to get back. And the matter can be more pure. Because through loving ourselves, we're not only giving a gift to ourselves, we're actually giving a gift to, to others, to, to humanity. So there's the self, and then there's the benefactor and the friend, which, we, which we've uh, gone into. 
sometimes uh, when we talk about metta and we talk about it being unattached and it's said that uh, the near enemy of metta that's a funny phrase it means what kind of looks like metta at first uh, but actually isn't so something that, that uh, bears a lot of similarity but actually isn't uh, and the near enemy of metta is what's called attached love uh, in other words I'll love you if uh, and a whole list of whatever and so just to see in the practice when this comes up, when the metta is more, has more attachment in it or less attachment in it or whatever, it's fine. It's part of uh, our humanity that this comes into the practice. Okay, And so not to expect a pure metta all the time that's completely free of attachment. We can see this in, in the practice. then include, as I said, our humanity, our complexity, the messiness of, of uh, I was going to say some, but actually probably most of our relationships. And this is just what it is to be in relationship, all kinds of relationships. There will be attachment coming in. In the meta practice, seeing that near enemy of attachment, you don't want to be, oh no, attachment, I'm doing it wrong, or, or oh, pushing it away or whatever. Actually just to see it seeing it, being aware of it is part of the practice and part of the learning process. If we're not familiar with what attachment is, we're not going to learn about about it. We're also not going to learn about what pure metta is. So not to be in too much of a hurry to judge or discard or whatever, just to see. Just to see. And we have this category of uh, the friend. And... Um, to ask, what is it? Uh, what is it to be a friend? What is it to be a good friend? And again, sometimes with the meta, and sometimes you know, for me, and I know I'm not the only one reading the suttas. It, we can read about this stuff, and it's almost inhuman. It sounds almost uh, something otherworldly or abstract or. Um, Reading the sutta sometimes a bit like chewing cardboard. It's not this. <laughs> it's not that juicy. It doesn't seem to sometimes relate too much to our actual life. But what is it to be a good friend? Uh, and some of that, to me, is uh, really seeing another, really seeing a friend. Uh, but we talk about you know meta not being attached. But to me, I mean, being realistic, being human, to be in a friendship means I also want to be seen. So I see the other, but I am seen. And this is, you know, we can talk about idealized metta, but in the reality, in the nitty-gritty of our life, we see, hopefully, the other. We give that fullness of seeing, and we want to be seen. You know, maybe we need to be seen. And we see ourselves as well. We see ourselves, and this is a huge part of what meditation practice is about, just seeing ourselves. Uh, whether it's vipassana or metta, seeing ourselves. And we appreciate the other. We appreciate their, uh, their particular beauty, their particular uh, uniqueness, their particular expression in the world. And for uh, many, to take in appreciation is also quite a, uh, a big step. 
are we open to actually hearing uh, someone express appreciation of how we are, what we are, who we are, how we did something. This is a huge part of metta as well, receiving that love. And for many, this is not easy. This is not easy. Are we appreciating other? Are we appreciating ourselves? Uh, are we appreciating ourselves and are we letting in the appreciation of others for ourselves? So often, uh, for, for many of us, these things, seeing, being seen, appreciating, being appreciated, we're not actually there uh, uh, that healthily or that fully uh, in, in the growing up, in the family environment, in the education, in the social environment, etc. And so, to me, one way of looking at practice, a big part is actually reparenting ourselves. The giving to ourselves the kind of attentiveness, the kind of seeing, the kind of appreciation that uh, that maybe we didn't quite get as fully as possible when we were younger. Re- reparenting, re- re-gifting ourselves with that. And that can be, you know, one way of looking at it, that can be a, a very important focus of practice for many years, many years. As I said, we have this idea, we, or we hear about metta, we read about it, and maybe in the sittas or whatever, and we get this, um, we get this, you know, aspiration. It's boundless. It has no limits. No one, no being is excluded, and it's also unconditional. It does not depend on you saying uh, that you like me or being nice to me or, or anything like that. It's unconditional. It doesn't even depend on you being that likable that nice. Uh, it's unconditioned, unconditioned and boundless. And sometimes, it, as I say, it can seem a bit unreal. And we can also get the sense that, well, we're just, we're sort of aiming to be these uh, meta-machines. <laughs> and everyone kind of will, you know, at the end of this three-week retreat, go through the grinder and, and emerge as this sort of meta-machine, you know, number one, two, three, and it all look the same. But somehow... In the meta, in the sort of high aspiration of it, it's going to preclude our personality and our personal, particular expression of meta, uh, our uh, self-expression in there, our uniqueness. And to me, it doesn't mean that at all. Absolutely doesn't. So, not to uh, make meta something unreal in our life. So I think it was yesterday that John talked about anatta, not self, and we'll be talking much more about that. And again, this is very important. To really be clear that metta and certainly anatta are not not, uh, closing the door on our individuality, on our uniqueness, on our particular self-expression. Actually, rather the opposite is more a question of, am I attached to my particular individuality, my particular self-expression, in a way that's causing suffering for myself or other? And usually, normal human beings, normal human consciousness, the answer is yes, I am. I'm somehow regarding my, uh, this particular individual as somehow separate, uh, somehow uh, fixed, fixed self, a separate self, and an independent self. 
And if I view my individuality and the whole culture of individuality and what I need and what I want and what my rights are, if I view it from that vantage point of a separate, independent and fixed self, bound to cause suffering for myself and for others, no, no question. If I have another view and I begin to see that this individuality, this uniqueness of self-expression is actually arising from an infinite web of conditions, absolutely uh, unfathomably infinite, mind-blowingly infinite, unentangable web of conditions. So just the physicality of, of who I am in this case. There was the genetic makeup of my uh, both my parents and where that came from, you know, that infinite regress of that. Uh, the sunlight, the food, where all that comes from. So just in the physical being, it's actually an infinite web that has given rise to this appearance, this form right now. And then uh, psychically, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, everything has influenced in the present and in the past, everything that I've read, everything that I've heard, all the music I've listened to, all the conversations I've had, all the interactions, all the education, all of that, everything, 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 every moment of my life is uh, has come together in some completely inextricable web to create this, and in some very uh, completely unrepeatable way to create this particular form right now, and including this particular expression right now as I'm talking. When we see that individuality in that context, then uh, we're completely free to be as unique uh, and individual and expressing our self in any way uh, that, that we feel free to. But it's always embedded in the context of, of all of life, of the whole universe. It's never divorced from that. It's actually inextricable from that. This takes, you know, we can hear that as an intellectual concept and think, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's cute, you know. Um, but there's a whole other thing to begin retraining the mind to see the self that way, to see what, what we do, what we say, uh, how we interact, to see it in terms of the web of conditions, and takes time. When we begin to see in terms of this infinite web, then it releases the freedom, our freedom to be as individual as we uh, feel, and releases also love because it's bound up with all other beings and everything else. So a humanity to come into to the meta, a, a realis- realism to come into the meta. <coughs> Uh, you know, when we talk about friendship, are we actually really, truly willing to to work with uh, the messiness of our relationships, of our friendships, the difficulties there, the complexity there, the, the humanity, what I call the humanity there? Uh, do we really have a full relationship with life, with friendship, with all of that? Or are we just trying to shave it down to some kind of spiritual ideal or out of a version or whatever it is? Is it really full? As um, some of you will know this passage, a uh, beautiful passage from, from Khalil Gibran in The Prophet. And it's about friendship. And uh, I read it. 
And the youth said, Speak to us of friendship. And he answered, saying, Your friend is your needs answered. He is your field which you sow with love and reap with thanksgiving. And he is your board and your fireside. For you come to him with your hunger and you seek him for peace. When your friend speaks his mind, you fear not the no in your own mind, nor do you withhold the yes. And when he is silent, your heart ceases not to listen to his heart. For without words and friendship, all thoughts, all desires, all expectations are born and shared with joy that is unacclaimed. When you part from your friend, you grieve not. For that which you love most in him may be clearer in his absence as the mountain to the climber is clearer from the plain. And let there be no purpose in friendship save the deepening of the spirit. For love that seeks aught but the disclosure of its own mystery is not love but a net cast forth. And only the unprofitable is caught. And let your best be for your friend. If he must know the ebb of your tide, let him know its flood also. For what is your friend that you should seek him with hours to kill? Seek him always with hours to live. For it is his to fill your need, but not your emptiness. And in the sweetness of friendship, let there be laughter and sharing of pleasures. For in the dew of little things, the heart finds its morning and is refreshed. So there's the, the friend and friendship and all of that means. And then we, we extend, uh, and, and uh, tomorrow we'll move on to the neutral, what's called the neutral category which actually is, uh, will, will be most of the six and a half billion people on the planet are actually neutral to us. And this is quite interesting, this is an interesting category, because sometimes, again, this can seem kind of abstract or removed, or, or not, we're not so involved. Uh, in the practice, we can begin to lose interest, is where we start kind of spacing out a little bit. But to see something, something very interesting going on here, what makes someone neutral? What makes someone just sort of fade into the greyness of the background? Can we begin to see, and, and this is something, this is in, in a way like a really uh, crucial investigation in our life, and it takes some time to see it. When the self-sense is strong, when the self is strong and built up, clinging is strong and we're clinging to something and that clinging is actually building up the self and the self is building up the clinging self and clinging build each other they're codependent they're mutually dependent when self is strong some other thing is strong some, some thing that's happening maybe some other person in our interaction with them maybe something in our body in our mind something in the environment something is strong and self is strong and they go together 
bound by the clinging. Clinging is strong, self is strong, self is strong, clinging is strong. When that happens, we kind of get a tunnel vision. Just me and this other thing, whether it's in me or outside of me or another person. Everything else just fades. It's, it's just other, it's just other, grey other. The more self-sense there is, the more sense of ev- just neutrality of other people, ir- irrelevancy of others. And to really um, begin to notice this and to really look into this in our life, how is it that we exclude, that we put others in the background? Now, obviously, some people are more in our uh, everyday life, but uh, something's going on here about clinging and self. And to really look at that and investigate it until it's very clear. It's also another way of looking at seeing what we call the emptiness of self. Self depends on our clinging to something, on our struggling with something, inner or outer. The more we struggle, the more we cling, the more self is built up. Self by itself is empty. It needs that clinging, that struggle. This is something that, that you know, spiritually speaking, we, we, we really need to understand. We need to be completely in ourselves clear about this. And, and it takes time. So there's the benefactor and the friend and the neutral. And sometimes, as I said, the friend or the benefactor can, uh, you know, there can be some difficulty and they find themselves in a difficult category. And they probably don't know it, but... Uh, Whatever, they're in the difficult category at times. And so I also feel very strongly that an important part of this, what I might call the, the realistic expression of metta is working with the difficult uh, with love. In other words, uh, actually expressing anger, expressing uh, no when we need to in a situation. No, actually that's not okay. No, uh, that was overstepping a boundary, whatever it is. Uh, that's you know that kind of strength of no uh, in the context of love in the context of metta so uh, metta is actually a strong thing it's not some you know namby pamby uh, Pollyannish thing it doesn't mean being a doormat okay? it doesn't mean that everyone's going to then step over us and, and we don't care and uh, uh, everyone just treats us you know like a doormat. Sometimes uh, we end up acting that way, a bit like a doormat, because of fear. Fear of actually expressing anger, fear of saying that no, inability of setting boundaries. This is really common. And um, I have a, a very good friend who, who suffered for many years, suffers from depression. And uh, she's beginning to, to get uh, realize in, in, in recently is that there's, for her, this isn't for everyone with depression, but for her, there's a real, first of all, inability to to express anger and to even be with the anger inside herself when something happens. And she's beginning to see what what she does with it. She turns it inside and kind of attacks the anger, starts to attack herself and ends up in depression. She's beginning to see that. And in in so doing, actually closing her love, the depression actually closes her, uh, what in her case is quite an extraordinary capacity to love. It just closes it. And I, I see this as being very, very common in, in uh, sort of um, 
spiritual circles of spiritual type people is extremely common and I know it's certainly true for, for me in, in the past real, real um, shyness about expressing anger about just feeling anger even I, th- I feel that anger is something very complicated and the expression of anger is something very difficult. It's one of these areas that we, we tend to jump to a conclusion uh, maybe too quickly. If, it, if we're into you know, meditation or that, it's bad. No, no anger, uh, no expression of it. Or we may be into certain kinds of psychotherapy that are all about kind of letting it out and venting it and expressing it and the catharsis of that. But just not so quick to conclude. It's, um, uh, to me, it's, it's a very tricky area. It's definitely true to say that there's too much anger in the world. There's too much violence, hatred, ill will, anger. That's, that's, you, know, you just have to open the newspaper to see that. You just have to go into you know, a lot of high streets to see that. So anger is, is complicated and it's interesting. Oftentimes, anger is blind in, in a number of ways. It's blind to its, um, its causes. So something happens and we tend to think, we feel angry, we tend to think, you did that wrong, you are making me angry, or whatever. We don't see the wider, again, the wider web of conditions. I needed to be uh, seeing the situation in a certain way, I needed to be in a certain mood, I needed a whole host of uh, inner and outer factors to be there for the anger to come. A lot of them are inner in the way we are, have been in the moments preceding that predisposed to seeing or assuming or uh, uh, perceiving or holding a situation. And that's all that, that crucible of conditions is, is the causes of anger. But we tend to just, again, isolate one thing and know you or sometimes I or whatever. So anger has this, uh, I would say almost inherently in anger, very lightly saying that, but almost inherently in anger is a, a blindness to its causes and the web of causes and the, and the greater picture of causes. But as I said, this is a very complex area. So anger can be blind to its causes, can be blind to its effects. Uh, Oftentimes when we have anger, it's kind of like a heat, a pressure inside that just wants to kind of burst out and burst forth and we want to express it and get it out. And I remember, uh, I don't know when it was, 20 20 years ago or something, I I just started working in psychotherapy when I lived in America, quite an intensive psychotherapy process. And the therapist said, uh, you know, you need to express some of this anger, you need to get it out. And so she suggested I go to the gym and uh, pummel a punch bag. So I was a very keen uh, client. <laughs> <laughs> and so off I went to the gym, and uh, this huge <laughs> And I was uh, pummeling this thing, and uh, what ha- with, with, uh, connecting with anger, and, and you know, connecting with anger, pummeling this punch bag. And what I noticed was I would do it, and I would get more angry <laughs> and just start pummeling it more and, and anger would build <laughs> and uh, being a very keen client I just kept going and it was huge rage building up and I did it and this over weeks actually and um, it, I got to the point where my, my hands were blistering and bleeding and 
at a certain point, some <laughs> sense kicked in and just realised this is actually building. There's something in there's something going on here that's actually what's what should what feels like it should be a letting out, an expression, a release is actually building. There's something going on. It's building anger. At first, I thought, oh no, now I'm connecting deep, deeper levels of it. Now it's really coming up. But after a while, it was. <laughs> it was. I was very young. Didn't you? <laughs> um, after a while, it, it just became clear. No, this is building it. There's something going on here that's actually building it. So, so anger has this. Can have this blindness to its effects on ourselves. We think it's going to release. It's going to let something go, and also on others, on the effect it has on others. And anger can also be blind to itself. Uh, it tends to view itself as uh, when we're seeing with anger, completely, you know, clear uh, vision of something. Uh, now here I am with Manjushri sword of wisdom, and I'm cutting through with my anger. Uh, and it's it's uh, actually <laughs> completely clouded with all kinds of things, but it, it has a feeling that it's clear. So it's anger, I'm going to talk a bit more about anger, but it's very complicated. I don't want to say one thing or the other. I just feel like it's, an, it's actually an ongoing, for me, it's an ongoing exploration with anger. I just, I've seen, I've, there's been times when I've been in this camp, and times when I've been in this view, and in a way, not, I feel, maybe for me right now, the wisest thing is not to settle so much on, this is how it is, and this is not how it is, and just uh, to keep the creativity and the questioning open with that. When we express, or, or when anger is expressed, you know, very uncensoredly from one to another, um, I feel, as human beings, we, we are enormously sensitive and vulnerable. Uh, we, are, we are fragile creatures, we are, we, our hearts are fragile, our, our, our very physicality is fragile, our energetics are fragile. When anger is uh, thrown at us, it's extremely difficult not to just react to that anger, not, for ang- not to uh, just automatically go into a reactive mode. Someone yells and we just immediately go, go into that, and it just builds. Uh, to me, it, I, I think it takes quite an evolved being to uh, hear, you know, have that torrent of anger come at them, uh, not automatically go into reactive mode, be very spacious, distill the truth of what's being said, and and respond appropriately. It would be a very evolved being, uh, working very hard, Um, (laughs) as far as I can tell. Uh, So when we we fling out, that's part of the blindness to its effects, we expect, well, I just want this to change. We're adding a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to hear anger and, and stay um, open and spacious and responsive and loving. So sometimes it can feel easier to, to, to vent anger in the moment. It feels like this pressure it wants to come out. It's just easier to vent it, easier to just bleh. But in the long run, what are we building there? What are we building? We're building uh, the habit of that. We're building a habit of not caring how it lands, how it affects. We're building the pathways of anger, all of that. In the long run, it's not easier. In terms of our relationships, it's not easier. 
So a, a real practice in life, I feel, is to, and I'm not saying not to feel anger, because uh, for most of us in this room that, that would be uh, you know, just a bit ridiculous, a step too far. What is it to feel anger and to say, I feel angry? And not to throw that, not to hurl it or dump it on another person. It's a whole different thing. I, you know, I don't think that's easy at all, not at all. And it's a real practice. And the Buddha talks about uh, the communication of what is difficult. He talks about speaking what's true and, and what's helpful. Speaking what's true and what's helpful in a helpful way at the right time. There's quite a, <laughs> there's quite a lot there <laughs> you know, to reflect on. Okay, I feel angry. <laughs> how am I going? You know, how am I going? What's the best way? And that can take time. Just to let it calm down a little bit, and then assess what, what do I? You know, what's going to be the best here? It's really a practice, not easy at all. And we learn this in as a practice. And we're going to make mistakes. Absolutely, there's no question that we're going to make mistakes in this area. Absolutely, no question. And so, for me, you know, my history, my whatever reasons, upbringing, whatever. Uh, I had a very strong tendency to um, not not express anger, certainly not express that no, not be able to express a no. Oftentimes, not even to be in contact with a f- with a feeling of anger when I felt it. So I'd be, you know, completely purple in the face or whatever, and uh, no, everything's fine. <laughs> uh, and that was that was my particular, you know, uh, leaning. And then you know, through practice and therapy and all this, and uh, uh, learned how to say no. And for the first period, which, to be honest, was actually a few years, uh, I would back, basically bite people's heads off, uh, completely nuke them. Went really to the other extreme in this in the way I said no, and caused a lot of fracturing in a lot of my friendships and relationships and family and stuff. Um. Uh, and, and thankfully, you know, I uh, healed it, but um, I had a tendency to be a little extreme. Anyway, um, the point is that we're going we're gonna to make mistakes with this, and we're going to either go to one extreme or the other, and it's, it's fine, it's really fine. You know, if we do make mistakes, a sorry goes a long way, a long, long way, a genuine sorry. And just to expect the mistakes and the moving back and forth as we learn, and I don't see any way other than that it takes years to learn this. And, and as I said, even, even then it's an evolving thing. There's no place we come to right now, that's it. Um, a while ago, uh, there was there was a situation that, that happened and, uh, over, over a little bit of time, and I felt, I felt quite angry about a number of things with a person. And I uh, sat with it for a while and, and sort of went, was with it, and met with this person and I uh, remember saying right from the bat, right from the, the first thing, you know, I want to talk about something d- difficult, I'm upset and I said uh, please, please know my intention is not to retaliate, uh, I don't want to hurt, my intention is not to hurt um, I'm also fe- I'm still feeling a bit upset I'm still feeling quite upset and, and confused a little bit, not so clear so maybe I won't express it so clearly, so perfectly, uh, because of the agitation and the hurt. And I felt like that was 
very helpful. It's kind of set something up in this interaction that I could, first of all, it set up the humanity of it. And secondly, it set up something about um, allowing me to not then express what it was, what I was troubled by, in, in a non-perfect way. I didn't have to do it perfectly. And I hope that it also allowed the other person to then be not perfect, so we could be human together. Now, of course, that intention not to retaliate, not to her, has to be real. You, you can't kind of go in there and say, yeah, I don't want to... <laughs> and actually, you've kind of got a gun. <laughs> um, so to take, take the time with this to really calm and find that place where genuinely we can say, okay, I'm still upset, I'm still hurt, I'm still confused, I'm still angry, but I really, really, really am clear in myself. I have no wish to hurt no ill will, no wish to be right to retaliate any of that. So anger in the context of love, anger in the context of metta. Sometimes we find ourselves w- with someone is ang- someone we love is angry at us and, um, and we find ourselves having to hear the anger. So again, this is quite interesting. Um, I I remember being in a meditation class in, in America when I lived there, and one of the teachers saying, you know, we're not obliged to uh, to take in, to uh, kind of bear anyone else's angry energy. There's no obligation to do that. And you can say to a person, I really want to hear what you're saying, but... I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna do that when you're in that much anger, when you're ranting and, and kind of yelling or, or whatever it is. So, you know, if you want to go for a walk and calm down and whatever, then I'll hear you. Of course, then they'll probably be. <laughs> 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 uh, but there's something when he said that. When I heard that, I, I had been. And this is again interesting about uh, the types of people that are sort of very committed to spiritual practice. I had been so much. Uh, in in the mold of um, I think because because pe- pe- often people who find themselves in these kind of environments very committed to personal growth really want genuinely to admit their faults to learn about themselves to change to to grow to to look at their shadow side their weak points etc and so like I said I had been very keen and someone was angry and I would just kind of open my heart to them yeah <laughs> and of course I was completely bowled over by this I mean really really bowled over and it would take me some, in some instances days or weeks to recover energetically and I think sometimes it just goes with a certain kind of um, earnestness really and, and sort of genuine you know, openness of heart and uh, so when he this teacher said that I was completely like wow that's, that's radical um, just to say, well, I'm actually not obliged to take in that energy. I'm not obliged to do that. I want, but I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your hurt. That piece is crucial, because often it's uh, that's the piece that's missing, and that's the piece that uh, uh, that allows anger to escalate. The people we or another person feels unheard, unheard. That's where the anger comes in. That they uh, or, or can, can escalate at least 
that, and you see this in individuals, you see this in um, uh, groups of people and terrorism and all that. In a way, terrorism, you know, you could say part of it is this, it's just this trying to break through with violence to try and be heard. A, a, a group of people or whatever, I mean, obviously it's much more complicated than that, but uh, a group of people or whatever feels completely uh, unseen in the whole progress of globalization or whatever, disenfranchised, etc., and I will be heard. And, you know, a bomb, what's louder than a bomb to be heard? Uh, when we feel unheard, there's a kind of powerlessness, there's a frustration and a hurt there. And uh, it's that hurt that's not being heard, and the, and the frustration of powers, and want to break through that. So gift to another person is to really hear, hear the hurt, to offer that. So... For me, what has, you know, in, in relationships, when there's been this kind of thing, what's been really healing is when I've been able to see that hurt in another and and actually just the heart then sees the hurt and connects with it. And there can be just the love there, the recognition, oh, I hurt you. And a genuine, it really pains me that I hurt you. I see your hurt. I see how I was, uh, you know, causing that. And, and it really, it hurts me that I hurt you. And there's a genuine uh, sorrow there. So someone, you know, we've all been in this, as uh, just two hardnesses, kind of two angers bumping up against each other. Someone at some point has to, has to um, soften, let go, be vulnerable. Otherwise it just keeps bumping. And, and you know, we've all been in that. Okay. Anger. That was anger in the context of metta. The different expressions of metta. The body. So put a lot of emphasis on on the sensitivity to the body uh, in the practice. Can it be that throughout our time here, throughout the day, that there's a kind of gentleness and care that comes to flow out of the body? So how we're walking, how we're opening and closing doors, how we're uh, handling dishes and cutlery, how we're eating. But the whole, uh, all the um, outflows of the body are actually um, reflecting a gentleness and a care. So begin to kind of incorporate that uh, much wider expression uh, during the day. Touch, of course, human, with human beings, we express love through the hands, through touch. Can we actually explore this while we're here in the context of meta retreat? What would it be to uh, actually even touch ourselves? Let the hand rest, and the hand rests on the other hand, and feel, allow a tenderness of touch to flow through. In this case, from one hand to the other hand, one hand to the arm, whatever. And, you know, you may be a little shy about this or, you know, it's a bit weird or whatever, but if you want to experiment with this, what is it to let the body and the hands really um, exude that and feel that? So if you want to, maybe in your room or whatever, just quiet. What is it to touch the body with tenderness? And to feel that, feel that. And this can go through the walking practice too. What, what, would it, what is it to walk? Human being walking on the earth and the feet touch the earth 
And in that contact, the sensations between the foot and the earth, there's love there. There's somehow love in the, in the, in the contact, in the mystery of what it is to be a human being with the foot touching the earth, walking on the earth. Somehow there's love. And to explore, this is, this is, this is all, all really possible in the practice. Love as expressed through the eyes, as attentiveness, to really look, to really uh, look at another, at uh, something in nature, ourselves in the mirror. So oftentimes in, in relationship we express love as attentiveness. And what a person needs often is attentiveness, the kindness of our attention. That's what we can offer others. So attentiveness as metta. And a slowness, so not, not to hurry, a guy has not really much to hurry for, it's really <laughs> sitting and then walking, sitting and walking, then there's lunch, but... Uh, but you can see, we can see this in, 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 our, in our world, in our everyday life, outside of retreat. And I, I notice very clearly, if I'm on the high street somewhere and I've got a, a, a list of, of errands, I need to go to the bank, I need to, um, uh, I don't know, buy groceries, and I need to... Uh, go to make an appointment at the doctor whatever I've just got this list I'm on the high street you know in, in London or Boston where I lived or, or Newton Abbott or wherever it is and there I am and I'm on the high street with the agenda of what I want basically in the, in the humble form of this list but basically it's what I want what happens what happens then I'm going through and all the other people on the street are just kind of beings in the way <laughs> beings in the way of what I want it's not even that dramatic you know. It's a, we, it, w- this is our normal mode of consciousness we, we have what I want we're moving towards something and there's stuff in the way and some of those stuff it happens to be human beings <laughs> we don't even realise that this is going on most of the time what happens, the consciousness shrinks what, what is it and, and you can really experiment with this so what is it to be slow not be in a hurry be on the high street without the agenda of what I want and this is very experienceable whole different sense begin to notice the whole sort of um, the whole uh, diverse beautiful wondrous expression of, of, of human life all, in all its diversity, children with mothers and interactions and friends and uh, exchange of this and that, and it's all going on. There's a, there's a widening of the perception instead of that tunnel vision again. It can be on the high street, and you know this sort of sense of boundless love and all that. It's not con- you know it's not just going to be constricted to the retreat and the kind of um, uh, you know careful conditions of a retreat. When we drop what I want, the heart opens in a very different way, has a very different sense of life and, and uh, the mystery of life. So when there's what I want and we're caught up in that, we close the doors to the mystery. And it's right there, believe it or not, in Newton Abbott, if anything you know <laughs> It's right there. Not necessary all the time. When, <laughs> when we slow down, slow the hurrying, drop a little bit what I want, 
and especially on retreat we can see this, there can come into the being a kind of stillness, a stilling of the being at a very deep level. Unforced stillness. An unforced, just organically comes into the being a stillness. Can. In that, a sense of silence, I talked a bit about this in the opening talk, a sense of silence can actually begin to, to stand out, to, to have a prominence. The sense of silence and, and all that that brings with it, the beauty of that. So and I, I touched on this again in the opening talk just briefly. One of the things that this sense of silence, as it begins to stand out, begin to, uh, begins to emerge, is it allows what's really important to the heart, what's deeply important, to to rise to the surface, and all the kind of little uh, really flotsam and jetsam, all the all the trivia that we're so preoccupied with, that can kind of just settle. And and what we really, what the heart really cares about in this life, can begin to come up and be clear, and and our priorities are clear and in place and accessible, and that's a huge gift of silence. Related is something else, and especially silence, especially in the context of a meta retreat, that we can begin to uh, just automatically uh, memories come up of uh, things that we did that we wished that we didn't, or something we said that we wished we didn't, or we didn't say that we wished we had. So this is very common, very uh, possibility of the softening and the meta and the silence and so I, I view remorse uh, as something very much a part of a meta practice and the silence and the retreat so just remembering and allowing that remorse being different from what guilt is I, call, I don't know if this is correct English but guilt I would say is when the self has got wrapped around something I did that wrong I am a terrible person I am unkind I, 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 I you, you, you Self has wrapped itself around. Remorse is something much more soft, much more open, much more creative. Oh, that's what I did. That's what I neglected to do. I feel the pain of that. I feel the sadness of that. But it's open. Not so much self. It's just saying something not so much about me, but about behavior. If that situation arises in the future, I'm very clear I want to do it differently now. And so the sadness is part of re-realigning the intentions of the being. So that kind of remorse, that kind of sadness can be a really important part of, uh, at times, at times, of of the meta practice and the silence. As, uh, potentially for some people, this silence, it can really begin to stand out and become prominent, and it becomes almost something all-pervasive and all-inclusive. There's almost a mystical sense of silence, uh, something really palpable. So uh, there's a poem about this by Pablo Neruda. Again, some of you might know it. Um, It's a very beautiful poem about this mystical quality of silence and its relationship to love. And it's called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve, and we'll all keep quiet. 
for once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It will be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So it's possible, one of the possibilities is for this sense of silence to really become strong and really have uh, a, a very deep effect. In the silence, what happens is the silence begins to... Uh, kind of embrace everything, be a backdrop for everything, hold everything. And the silence begins to stand out and begin to let go of our preoccupation with things, with objects, which is the normal con- preoccupation of consciousness with things and with objects. That begins to go a little bit back in, into the background. We let go of that preoccupation. It's almost like some other sense, the sense that Naruto is talking about, some other sense can begin to come to the fore and make its, uh, make itself, make its impact on the heart. So that possibility also opens the door to the possibility of this sense of the being being in this space of silence and in a way receiving love that space, that silence holds everything everything arises and passes in that silence, in that space and we begin to get a whole other sense of of love a whole other sense as love as a kind of holding as a kind of receiving that we ourselves are held and received all things, all beings are held and received in that silence, in that love so on this retreat we happen to be choosing the technique of the phrases and the systematic way of doing it that way there's actually there's tons of ways of doing metta it's a very, very fruitful for some people it's actually having a figure like Jesus or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion Avalokiteshvara some figure that completely embodies love and one is just reminded of that and tuning into that energy and allowing that to to radiate and permeate from that being. (coughs) Or there can be this sense of silence and letting go into silence. It actually doesn't really matter too much. But the the meta is 
especially in these other ways if you have a, a kind of bodhisattva figure or the silence or something like that it begins to give a sense of the self not always doing the matter, that the matter is self-created always self-created uh, coming from effort there can be a sense that we're in a way something is unveiled something that's woven into the fabric of the universe love it can, we can be un, uh, in a way just some, some veil is lifted and we begin to get a sense that somehow it's there all the time um, a little while ago on a work retreat there was a work retreat in here and uh, we were working on meta in different ways so s- some slightly different ways than what we've yet uh, been doing here um, but she wrote me a note which, which talks a bit about this and I, I keep it because it's, uh, it's put so well so beautifully and uh, English isn't even her first language but dear, dear Rob practicing after the meeting in the library an old, well-known apparently insoluble pain arose very quickly already aware that there wasn't any wholehearted acceptance yet an attempt to embrace the pain lovingly coming from a hidden agenda of wanting it to go away, to dissolve. Somehow it was clear that this unloving attitude was known by the pain, so it wouldn't pass but intensify. What was needed was very clearly a pure embrace of loving-kindness, breathing to expand the capacity of accepting the unacceptable and relax, breathing to expand the capacity to love the unloved and relax. And then a change. Deep, pitch-black darkness, familiar though, was around, and the thought was, even the unloved is surrounded by love all the time anyway, and it went on. We all are surrounded, loved, all the time anyway. We may not know, we may not have experienced it yet, yet love is around all along. awaiting us to open up to it, to become sensitive to it, to receive it. With all our incompetence, imperfection, impurities, we are surrounded by love nonetheless. If that is so, doesn't it bring with it a kind of responsibility, as it were, to expand our capacity to love unconditionally? As human beings, we are never able to embrace unconditional love. It always embraces us, always has been, and always will. Is that true? Question. How can love appear as dark, black? Isn't it said and written umpteen times it comes as light? Am I experiencing a hoax? (laughs) 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 I'm sure that she wasn't. Um... Very beautifully put, and and um, not to not again not to grasp at any of this stuff, you know, just say this or that, or not to grasp it, but just to say that this actually isn't that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. So some may relate to this, some may relate to the idea of a bodhisattva, to the silence, to this kind of all-encompassing love, and some not. It, it doesn't matter. The important thing, I think, is that perceptions through this practice somehow perceptions are changing and opening and that is really significant perceptions are changing and opening 
and that is more crucial than it at first appears. So we go back to the phrases for a second. Sometimes with the phrases, uh, as I said, sometimes there's no feeling of matter there, and we're just kind of, you know, patiently, steadily working away, grinding away at the phrases. Sometimes there is a feeling of matter, and then the feeling of matter, whether it's uh, whatever it is, warmth or pleasantness or openness, or sometimes it's there and it's quite steady. And then you might want to experiment with letting the phrases, uh, let them go, or let them get very light, and, and maybe let them go just be with the steadiness of that feeling. Now we have the friend and the benefactor. Sometimes, sometimes it's possible that we're giving matter to the friend or the benefactor to another, and there's the sense of them, and the metta deepens, the samadhi deepens, and even the visual sense of them kind of fades a little bit, and there's just a sense of a heart radiating metta to another heart, just a heart to a heart. Sometimes even that sense begins to fade a little bit, and it's just hearts merging. And just a sense of a kind of communion of hearts and maybe uh, the sense of the other person has gone a little bit and it's just a kind of, there's just maybe light there or just a sense of communion, warmth. Communion of hearts. In that, then, then there is a sense of oneness, of oneness. Now, oneness, I'll, I'll go into this in a bit more detail too in, in another talk, uh, other talks. Oneness is not quite the same as not-self, anatta. But it's hugely important. It's hugely important for a human being to actually open to that sense of oneness in their life. Uh, so it's a sense that comes and goes. But it begins, potentially, to question the perception. of everyday, taken-for-granted perception of separation. I'm here, you're there. I'm here, the world is out there. This is our everyday, normal consciousness perception. If, and I'm talking about a lot of practice of metta, if there is this going in and out of the sense of oneness, of sense of just merging, communion of hearts, it really does begin to question our taken-for-granted perception of separation. And a person can, can, can wonder over time, what actually is the truth? Separation, oneness, what's the truth? So I'm going to, I'll be picking up, I will be picking up again on, on this, these questions of oneness and uh, perception and truth and anatta uh, uh, and all of that uh, in, in, as the retreat goes on, but I think I'll stop there for today. Um, and just to, just to outline, you know, some of the, the whole, whole range of possibilities of the, the kind of dimensions and expressions of metta. Shall we sit uh, together for a moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.